Epistle reading from 2 Corinthians 5 and 6. Paul says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is the word of the Lord. You may be saying, thanks be to God. Please stand for the God. If you could look with me at the uh, epistle reading, 2 Corinthians reading. And let's talk about that for a few minutes tonight, or I'll talk about it for a few minutes tonight. Um, there's something about, uh, Ash Wednesday is a vital, which is kind of a weird thing to say, because vital means alive and life-giving. And in Ash Wednesday, we remember that we're all dead people walking. But it's absolutely, it's absolutely essential. There's nothing like death to sharpen your sense of what's important, of what's actually permanent, or what's, you know, take it or leave it. People, when people find out that they have a terminal illness, or when they find out that somebody that they love has, has died, it totally eliminates everything else in your life. Momentarily, I know, you, know, you get tickets to the ball game, and all of a sudden, it's the last thing you would ever think about was going to the ball game and using those tickets. You stop thinking about food. Uh, it sharpens your thinking to, 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 to say what's important, what's really important. And so I think that you know, going into Lent, the church has this thousands of years tradition of beginning Lent with Ash Wednesday with the reminder that we're all dead people walking. Uh, because it's important, you know, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna think for the next few months about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him on his path to the cross and what does it mean to be repentant of our sins. There's nothing like death that will sharpen our thinking and say, no, this actually is what's most important. These things here, whatever those things are, and we'll we'll think about those things over the course of the next uh, 40 days. But, you know, this question of what's important is on Paul's mind too when he's writing 2 Corinthians and especially the question of you know, how does he commend himself? It's a, it's a phrase that the ESV uses to translate th- th- this phrase that he uses through 2 Corinthians. I'm commending myself. I'm recommending myself. I'm telling you why I'm important. But part of the reason why he wrote 2 Corinthians was to convince the 2 Corinthians that he was important. Important enough to listen to. Important enough to put other people who disagreed with him aside and hear Paul's gospel. It's one of the reasons, actually it's the main reason why he wrote 2 Corinthians. 
And he talks about commending himself in our text too. In verse three of chapter six, we put no obstacle in which no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. What does it mean to commend yourself? If you were gonna commend yourself, what is it that you would use about your life to say, I have value, you should take me seriously? What is it? Is it, would it be some sort of talent that you have or some sort of accomplishment that you have or uh, some gift that you've provided humanity, whatever that is. Maybe it's your beautiful kids or grandkids or maybe it's your beautiful car. Well, what Paul does is he actually does something, and this is the thing that, you know, I said Ash, Ash Wednesday sharpens our senses of what's important. Paul tumbles our normal responses to that question completely on its head. What's important? What's important about you? And the answer is, you're a dead person walking. You're a dead person walking. And so Paul's going to give this list here. What does a successful Christian look like? What does a successful human being look like? And he does this, uh, actually look, look with me in uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 4, where I just ended a second ago. He's got three lists. One is, it's led into by the preposition by. Uh, the next is led into, the, into by the preposition through. And then the third list is, read, is led into by the preposition as. So first of all, Paul commends himself by this following list of things. This is what commends Paul. This is what's on his CV. When he goes in for a job interview, this is what he lists to let the people know, you should hire me. He doesn't talk about his grace under pressure. He doesn't talk about that time when there was conflict in the workplace and he completely settled it and stayed calm. He doesn't talk about all these fantastic letters that he's written to the churches which have changed people's lives. What he says is, this is what commends me. Look at verse four. Great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings. This is what he's putting on his CV. Like, I have a hard time living my Christian life. I've been beaten. I've been imprisoned. I've been in riots. We know of one, one in, in, in Ephesus. Uh, labors. And then he goes, so he, so he lists these things, all, all these sufferings from sort of outside of himself, the hard work that he does and what it's resulted into, the calamities and the beatings and the riots and the, and the imprisonments. That, uh, and he, chapter 12, he's gonna go on and do another list. The, this is what I've gotten, is I've gotten mistreated by those who are opposed to the gospel. That's what's on his CV is, I failed. I've done evangelism and I got beat up for it. I, tried, I, I, I wanted to plant a church in this city. I wanted people to come to Jesus Christ and I started a riot and I had to leave town. This is what's on his CV. So next he goes to a list of uh, virtues and references to God's power. So it, it, I've been imprisoned, but this is where it's come from. Look, look at verse, uh, uh, verse uh, uh, six. By purity, by knowledge, he doesn't mean by smarts, by intellect, but you know, book smarts. He means, in good Hebrew fashion, he means knowledge of God by knowing God in Jesus Christ. By patience, by kindness, the Holy Spirit, he's giving credit to God here, by genuine love, self-sacrificial love, by truthful speech, by being honest in my proclamation of the gospel, and ultimately the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. What's on Paul's CV are things that aren't really you know, he's been, he got beat up, prison. He's a patient guy. 
he's, you know, truly loving. I mean, do you say this? Like, if you were applying for a job, would you be like, truly loving? The power of the Holy Spirit. This is why I should get this job. He gives God the credit. It's, it's, the, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God, the weapons of righteousness. The next thing he does is he goes to an, a, a shorter list, which he begins with the, the preposition through in verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. His ministry involves both being honored and dishonored, both being slandered and praised. This, these words should remind us, if we'd read, if, if we'd read all of 2 Corinthians, which we didn't have time to do, these, these are references to Christ. Christ, too, was dishonored on the cross, was honored by the resurrection from the dead and the proclamation that he is the Lord of all things now. Paul says, my ministry can't be gauged by honor or dishonor. I get both of those. I can't use that as a barometer. And now I'm kind of piggybacking on some of the things I said Sunday. I can't use honor or dishonor as a barometer for my success. I can't use slander or praise. When I'm being praised, I can't say, well, this is successful. And when I'm being slandered, I can't say this is unsuccessful. Because my ministry involves both being slandered and praised, but by, 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 by being both dishonored and honored. His last list is prefaced with the preposition as. So if the, if the first preposition by leads us into what commends the Christian, what commends Paul, the second preposition through is the circumstances, the circumstances in which the Christian is commended. The circumstances, the circumstances in which the Christian can say, I am successful. And the circumstances there are being slandered and being praised, being honored and being dishonored. And then finally, with the preposition as, how the Christian's commendation, how, how the success of the Christian looks to the world versus its reality. There's a fascinating uh, set of antinomies here, starting in verse, uh, at the bottom half of verse 8. We are treated as imposters and yet are true. The world calls us liars and yet our truth is irresistible. The world thinks of us in verse 9 as unknown and yet well-known. As, you know, as, as marginalized, as, as a minority group that would just be easy just to kind of not listen to, the kind of fringe elements. And yet we're everywhere. You can't escape from us. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. We're dying, but we live. I think you guys, it's kind of an enlightenment sport to predict the end of Christianity. It's been going on for like 300 years. Uh, famously, Oh, this is one example that's kind of like, it's been kicked around so often in sermons, uh, you know, uh, who knows whether it's true or not. But, uh, um, you know, Voltaire, the, the, the French intellectual and writer, said that, he, he said at one point that Christianity is certain to die. Within 100 years, the only Bibles that we have in France will be in museums. 50 years after he said that, an English traveler visited his home and noted that at least part of his house was being used as a distribution center for Bibles by the Genevan Evangelical Society. So it's a, you hear this all the time. Oh man, religion is declining. Fewer and fewer people are going to church. Within 30 years, the churches will be empty. I've been hearing this my whole life. I know that we've been hearing it in the West for the past 300 years. And yet, the Christian church continues to grow. It's whistling in the dark on the enemy's part. It's wishful thinking that somehow you can kill these people. And you, they actually literally do. They kill these people, and yet they keep multiplying. 
This is the power of the gospel. Paul says, you can kill me, but I can't stay dead because of the resurrection of Jesus. You can squash me, but whenever you squash me, there's 10 more Christians that pop up because they witness my martyrdom and are drawn by the power of that and the Holy Spirit to faith in Christ. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I mentioned this in a sermon several months ago. I'll say it again here too. The thing about Christians is that we sorrow, but deep down inside, there's this lasting joy that Christians know that the sorrow is temporary, that the sorrow is marginal. The sorrow comes and goes. Even ultimate sorrow, like losing a loved one or finding out that you're terminal. For the Christian, that's a blip in the story of the life of the Christian, which ends with resurrection and new creation. For the unbeliever, though, while the outside looks happy, there's an underlying angst. There's an under, especially for the postmodern person, there's an underlying sense of dread and hopelessness. And the whole world is going to crash and burn. So we can have fun now, but none of this is going to turn out well. For the Christian, the world thinks of us as sorrow, and yet we are always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. This upside-down reality is what Ash Wednesday calls our minds to. The target is not success in the world standards. The target is not relevance. The target is not people thinking that we're cool. The target is not big, beautiful, powerful ministries that impress everybody. The target is imprisonments, beatings, slander and praise, honor and dishonor, being killed and yet not being able to be killed, being sorrowful sorrowful and yet being unable to contain the joy that's deep down underneath of it. For Paul, this is the backwards reality that is the capital R reality. But how can this be? How can this backwards reality happen? For Paul, and I'm not like tipping, I'm not telling any trade secrets here. For Paul, this always goes back to the crucified and risen Messiah, to the one who's obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Again, this is from the sermon on Sunday. Therefore, not, but good news, transition, God's highly exalted him. Not, he's been obedient to the, to the point of death on the cross. However, God is highly, it's, it's not a this, but thankfully now this. It's, he was obedient to the point of death, therefore, These are organically and inextricably linked for Paul. The suffering of the Messiah is a therefore to his ascension and his glory. And the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You cannot separate the two. You can't even, in some sense, think of them as transitional. As phase A, thank goodness we're done with the crucifixion, phase B. For the crucifixion, for for, for the Christian, we are always carrying about in our bodies, this I'm quoting from 2 Corinthians, a part we didn't read tonight. We are always carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the resurrection power of Jesus may be made manifest. We are always jars of clay. We are always broken. We are always killed but not being able to be killed. Those two things always go together. Paul makes this explicit here in our text. Let me just point this out to you. And I'll try to be kind of quick with this because it's the kind of thing that I could like nerd out on and spend way too much of your time on this. Go back to the beginning of the text. Chapter uh, uh, 5 and verse uh, 20, uh, back into verse 20. And let's just remind you, Paul is arguing to the Corinthians that I am a true apostle. So what happens is that in the church in Corinth, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, a lot of the church had been tempted to abandon Paul because Paul was weak. Paul frequently ended up in prison. Obviously, he's not very good at ministry. He's not done all the church growth studies because he always fails. Like he always gets a beat up and he has to leave town. We, this is a group of people that Paul in his letter calls the super apostles. And he's being, he's being sarcastic about that. The super apostles are rich. They're dynamic. They do tons of miracles. 
They preach immensely powerful sermons. People flock to them and are giving them tons of money. And Paul says, you shouldn't listen to them. Look, I have the true credentials. I fail. I get beat up. I'm in prison. I look like Jesus. They don't look like Jesus. They look like CEOs. They look like movie stars. They look like rock stars. They look like the, 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 the models on the front of fashion magazines. Look at me. I'm lame. I'm ugly, he says. I'm a horrible speaker. People beat me up when I talk about the gospel. That's how you know that I am preaching the true gospel, that I am the true apostle. This is what he's arguing. He says in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, Jesus died on the cross so that we could be righteous with God, so that we could have the righteousness of God. Working, verse chapter six, verse one, working together with him then, Paul says, I am working with God. The way that Jesus did it is the way I'm going to do it. Jesus did it through suffering on the cross. I too am going to suffer on my cross because that's how you meet the suffering Jesus. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 49, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I helped you. Paul says, don't reject Christianity because it doesn't look successful. Because if you reject Christianity, you will reject true life. You'll reject true truth. You'll reject Jesus. Now, okay, so just bear with me. I don't often ask you guys to do this, but uh, I don't know. I felt like having a little bit of fun on my own tonight. Just uh, humor me here. Could could you take your pew Bibles in front of you and turn to Isaiah 49? I'm going to talk for a little bit here. This is not necessarily excursus. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you the text where Paul quotes from when he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I've helped you. And I'm going to tell you why Paul quoted that text. It's on page 548 of your pew Bibles, uh, if you can't find Isaiah. It's a big fat book kind of in the middle. Paul quotes this text, and he knows that when I quote this, when I quote this verse here, it's actually verse 8 from there, but we're going to look at the whole, the whole section. He knows when I quote this verse, they will know the whole section. Why? Well, because they knew their Old Testament, A. B, because this is one of the most important texts in the whole Old Testament. You know about, do you guys know about the four servant songs in Isaiah 40 to 55? Isaiah 53, we just looked at that a few weeks ago. It's the most famous one. It's the fourth one. Isaiah 49 is the second one. It's a, it's a story of this coming servant who's going to suffer to pay for the sins of God's people And God is going to reward his suffering by giving him authority and power and by rescuing his people through this suffering servant. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read this and I'm going to to give you the vibe of this. And while I'm doing this, be thinking about why would a text like this connect with Paul's point about suffering being the path of glory, suffering being the true Christian commendation. Okay, let's look at Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. And here's the servant. We don't know who the servant is until you get to the New Testament. Here, by the way, note to Bene, here he's going to call him Israel. Israel was called to be the servant of God. Israel failed in that. And so the Messiah comes to sum up Israel in himself and be for the world what Israel was called to be, a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, to be that kingdom of priests and thus be the true Israel. That's why he calls him Israel here. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. This is the servant talking. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. 
He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Remember, this is Jesus talking 400 years before Jesus was born. Uh, sorry, 600 years. Verse four, but I said, now this is, this, this is discouragement here in the servant's voice. I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. The servant says, God's called me to do this incredible thing, but it's been a waste. Like I've ministered and I've been abandoned. I've been lynched. I've been executed for a crime I did not commit. I've been buried. This has been a failure. Let's keep on going. Yet, what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, here's what the Lord responds to the servant. He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. God says to Jesus, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's one of the reasons why this would connect with Corinthian hearers. For the Gentiles, this message that the Jewish Messiah has come, and now he's saving you too. He didn't come just for the Jews, but he came for Greeks. And you too can be welcomed in the kingdom, would be powerful, would be very powerful. That's not what I want to emphasize here, though. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised. This is failure. This, this is going to sound like Paul's recommendations of himself in 2 Corinthians 6. To him who was despised and abhorred by, abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, to the slave of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who's chosen you. This is what the Lord says. Now, here's what Paul quotes here. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. He's saying to the Messiah, he's saying to the servant, to Jesus, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness, be free. And then he goes on to, to, uh, for, for the, the, the uh, rest of the four verses, which I'm not going to read, uh, to talk about how God is going to use the servant to bring about salvation for the whole world. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. It burst into song of mountains. It's going to be cosmic salvation. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Verse 13. So why would Paul quote this? Because Paul is saying, you guys know your Bible. This is the way God works. He chooses a servant. That servant gets crushed to the point of failure, to the point of saying, this has all gone wrong. This is not working. Crushed to the point where all of his friends who were on his side say, we're done with that guy. That guy is obviously a loser. And it's that point, it's at that point that the world is reconciled back to God. So Paul uses this, he, just by quoting that one verse, he evokes this whole text and says, don't abandon my gospel. Don't abandon the path of the cross. Don't seek for glory. Seek for Jesus. This is what Ash Wednesday is ultimately about, right? Verse 2 of chapter 6. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It doesn't look like it's working, but it never, we were never told it was going to look like it was working. Like, we were never told it was going to look like it was working. It was always going to look like failure. It was always going to look like God's own body hanging bloodied from a cross. Don't abandon that. 
Don't abandon Jesus. I know what it looks like, but now is the day of salvation. Now it's happening. Now you're being rescued. And that's what Ash Wednesday is. It's a reminder that we're dead people. That we of all people, Christians of all people, are going to be the ones that refuse to hide our eyes from our own death. We're going to refuse to hide our eyes from our own suffering, from our own affliction. We're not going to whistle in the graveyard. We're not going to paper over the brokenness by chasing money or pleasure or power. We're going to look it in the face, and we're going to mourn our deaths. We're going to say it's a broken, fallen world, and we deserve to die because we've rebelled against God. But we're also going to rejoice because our God died with us, and he turns that death, he turns those imprisonments, he turns that suffering into kingdom glory. He rescues the world through the suffering of his Messiah joined to the suffering of his church. Amen.